This week's episode of On Comedy Writing is brought to you by Handy. Uh, Jack Handy, great comedy writer. He was did the SNL Deep Thoughts. Uh, and I'm really excited to print this book that he's got coming out. Um, oh, I just opened uh, the ad copy, and it's it's not for Jack Handy. Uh, it's for a website. Okay. I had a lot of um, Jack Handy specifics, but um, I can audible here. Uh, and not audible.com. Um, Handy is a website where you can book top-rated home cleaners and handymen. Friendly vetted professionals at your doorstep. Just pick a time and we'll do the rest. Um, that's a deep thought. Uh, shoot. I should read these copy before I start recording. Don't want to restart because I, I don't really have much time before this episode comes out. Um, experience and background check professionals. You can do easy online payment and rescheduling. God, I really, I spent a lot of time on the Jack Handy Wikipedia page. I copy and pasted a lot of facts about him. He's from San Antonio. He's 69. Nice. I was going to do a whole bit about that. Uh, Handy has affordable and flexible cleaning plans. You can request your favorite professionals. Every cleaning is insured. Um, shit. Oh, I just got a tech. I mean, I just got a text. Jeez Louise. This is a mess. I uh, uh, every uh, cleaning supplies included. They also do furniture assembly, interior painting, hanging pictures and shelves, TV mounting, plumbing, electrical, a handyman, and more. Um, maybe they can do a couple of uh, sardonic jokes to um to to paintings. Is that what Jack Handy did? I don't even remember. I just keep on getting too much text. Oh, God, I should start this over. I, I really, I mean, this is, you know, I do bits on these ads. This is not a bit. I thought this was a Jack Handy ad. <sighs> I'm going to keep going. Um, you can book a cleaner today and save by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash handy. That's boardwalkaudio.com slash handy. This is a Boardwalk Audio podcast. <laughs> On comedy writing, on comedy writing. Thanks for downloading this episode of On Comedy Writing, the podcast about the business and craft of writing comedy. I'm your host, Alan Johnson. We've got a great episode, but first, the best way to support this show is by going to boardwalkaudio.com slash oncomedywriting. Click the supporter artist button and shop on Amazon like you normally would. We get a little kickback. I always have trouble saying like you normally would. I should maybe change that in the copy. Anyway, unimportant because this week's guest is Sal Gentile. He's a writer for Late Night with Seth Meyers and is a UCB guy who's been on improv and sketch house teams. But also, and perhaps more interestingly, he was a journalist before he got hired for Seth Meyers. So we talk about how that part of his career informed his comedy, which is really interesting. So here is Sal Gentile. <laughs> Uh, Sal, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, where are you from originally? I'm from originally from New Jersey. I'm like from the Shore area, kind of. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I I don't like to. T- it is technically the Shore area. It's like where I'm from is like 20 minutes. I don't like to say that I'm. Uh, I like to distinguish it from the actual Jersey Shore because right. there's a lot that people assume. 
there's a lot of stereotypes attached to the Jersey Shore. Well, but the, and the show's back now. It is. It which is. Which is unfortunate, I guess, for you. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I, I haven't watched any of the new show or any of the... I think it just came out uh, yeah, last night or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't really watch... I mean, I remember I was... Oh, I was just... I was just a... Uh, uh, Trying to remember because I didn't really watch the old show. I just know like vaguely about the characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was asking somebody. I was like, "Oh, the is that Jersey Shore show is back." I was like, and I was like, I, didn't, I was trying to remember one specific thing. I was like, "Didn't didn't Snooki punch somebody?" And then it turned <laughs> out that Snooki got punched, which is horrible. Oh. I didn't know that. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. I just had this vague memory of Snooki and punching, but I guess she got punched. And I and then I went down this rabbit hole of trying to remember that incident which i guess was famous that she got punched on tv which is horrible but that is crazy yeah i don't know what the context was but anyway that's a long way of saying i'm from new jersey (laughs) uh were you like into comedy at a young age um i was but in terms of what i conceived possible for myself i didn't actually ever think i would like go into comedy writing i def i was me i was into writing Generally, like that, since since a young age, I always wanted to be a writer. But I usually wrote like you know fiction, short stories, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Like when I went to co- like I did that, I did that in high school. When I went to college, I majored in our equivalent of creative writing. So I, and I also did nonfiction. Like I edited the college newspaper and stuff. So I I was always interested in writing, but like, and I was always interested in comedy as a as a. A, a passion but i never like i was never like from a young age one of those people was like i'm gonna be a, like a late night comedy writer because it never can it never even occurred to me as like being possible so did you uh watch any like comedy shows growing up uh i did i i was in like i would say high school for me it was like the golden age of late night with conan o'brien mm. and that had like a huge impact on me um and uh uh, I was also into a bunch of the Adult Swim shows too when I was in high school, um, so I would say those were kind of my main. I was main. I, th- th- those were my main points of exposure to comedy, um, uh, but uh, really, I, I remember most often talking about the the Adult Swim shows. I would talk a lot about with my friends, but definitely uh, Conan would be a big thing for us. Do, do you remember a show called uh, Assy McGee? It vaguely rings a bell. I bring it up every time someone talks about Adult Swim. It was a show about uh, an ass who was a police detective. Uh, oh my god! It's that. It rings a bell. I feel like I must have seen like a promo for yeah. it or something while watching, you know, Aqua Teen or whatever. Yeah. But I. I. That's so crazy. Well, how long did it last? I think it was like three seasons. I really? it was like a legitimate run. Yeah. Wow. Gotta look. I have to look into that. Now. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it since I was like a little kid, but uh, it definitely. It definitely rings a bell. It could also just be that that phrase Assy sounds McGee, like yeah. something like if somebody were to call you an Assy McGee, you'd be right. like, it would be weird, but you might think it was a thing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that's crazy. And then uh, Conan, um, they did the reruns on Comedy Central. I remember, and that I remember watching that when mm-hmm. I was a little kid. Yeah, and also um, Saturday Night Live. 
reruns were during the day on Comedy Central, which, like, when you were off from school, like, over the summer or whatever, was, like, huge. You would just watch that all the time. I would. And my brother and my friends. And then it... I remember this was, like, a big thing. And I think I was in high school. I'm pretty sure I was. When the SNL reruns were bought and moved, they moved to, like, the E! Network or something like that. And they weren't on Comedy Central anymore. And... You knew, like, reliably during the day on Comedy Central, if you were home from school, if it was, like, summer or something, that you could watch SNL reruns. And so we would watch them, like, all day for hours. And then and then when they moved to the E-Network, like, we didn't even know what the E-Network was. Right. And we had no way of knowing what time <laughs> they were going to be on. And so we just never, we just stopped. But it, so it was, like, such a schism. It was, like, this hard break where it was, like, oh, we watch SNL reruns with, like, the the sort of, like mid early two, 2000s cast of like Will Ferrell and Sherry O'Terry and stuff and like obsessively watched those in Molly Shannon and then then they went to this different network and we just never saw those right. again. Um and that was the era of like best of DVDs so I had like a ton of those and stuff. Um but uh but yeah, oh I just remembered that when I moved to E network. <laughs> uh that was uh that was sad. The two things that like I watched obsessively like when you were when I was like summer break and you had nothing to do, the two things that you would watch are there would be sports center would run from like yeah. eight in the morning until like four o'clock in the afternoon, just the same one over and over. So you'd watch the same sports center over and, over and SNL reruns on comedy central. I just remembered recently how much I used to watch ESPN all the time when I was a little kid. I used to watch mm-hmm. baseball tonight, like every night oh, for too. hours, which is crazy. Me too. I'm obs- I was, I watched hours and hours of baseball. Tonight. I don't even think I was that big a baseball fan. I'm certainly not anymore, but that, <laughs> I don't even think back then I was that big a baseball fan, but I always watched, uh, it was like, What's his name? Carl uh, Ravitch? Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Carl Ravitch. Him and yeah. Kruk and yeah. John Kruk. Um, it was uh, it was just on yeah. like all the time, and it was like a big show for ESPN. They don't even they really don't even have baseball tonight right. anymore. Yeah, um, they do, but it's like it's essentially just like the lead-in show to their Sunday night baseball mm-hmm. game. Like they don't, it's not like a big regular thing anymore. Yeah, totally that. And yeah, that and Sports Center, they were just like on all the time. It's weird to think now because like I don't have cable anymore. A lot yeah. most people I feel like don't have cable. Anecdotally, yeah. Yeah. it's weird to think about what people uh, are watching now. Like I guess you have, you just have you're not going to stumble upon anything anymore. You're you're not going to watch baseball tonight for hours. Totally, you don't you don't the stumbling upon now is just like Netflix telling you what else you might like. Right, like, it's an algorithm. No, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not even stumbling. Right, it, it is. It's, it, <laughs> yeah. You feel it's the sensation of stumbling without actually you're actually being guided down a path. But that's true. People don't just like stumble on things anymore. And when you do it, when you do like because I still have cable, I only mm-hmm. have it for sports because like. We we're just like we're we're like an inch away from that being not necessary anymore. Right. We're like one step away from it. But for now, if you're a fan of a sports team in New York, you can't stream those online because they still black them out. Really? TV. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. So you can't. Well, you like if you have a cable subscription, you can stream them online. Right, yeah. But if you get but if you cancel your cable subscription, you can no, you could steal someone else's. You could mm-hmm. use someone else's. So you could definitely do that. Yeah. Which I'm sure people do. But, um, but I, that, but you know, like if you want, want to watch like the Mets or something, you can't because that's blacked out. Yeah. Um, so, but we're so close to that not being a thing anymore. Right. Um, but for now I have it just for sports. Uh, but the few times I'm like super bored and there's nothing in particular I'm, I'm watching at the moment on Netflix or whatever, 
I will go on TV and just flick around and you realize just like how like all of it is just like Lord of the Rings on TNT <laughs> and just like that's that's what like Lord of the Rings is on four different channels that and like Big Bang Theory that's what it is you just flip through those yeah it's interesting this is all syndication stuff it is and then yeah. obviously there's tons of obviously we're in what people have called like a golden age of TV because mm-hmm. there's a million different channels doing really good stuff but a lot of those are not obviously on tv so even if you wanted to find interesting television it's migrated to like subscription services right. and stuff so yeah it's a little bit like um like what happened to radio where radio essentially also became a wasteland with the exception of npr mm-hmm. like npr is like the oasis and what is otherwise <laughs> like a nightmare of radio like if you're listening to radio i mean talk radio specifically yeah. not not music programming like talk radio is like a nightmare of like just like a cesspool of right wing like talking heads and stuff except and then you'll find npr and then it's another you know there's nothing else on right. so a kind of similar thing is happening with tv yeah i don't know <laughs> there's no, no, no answers yeah. to that yeah uh so you went to college for writing yeah and uh, what college did you go to Johns Hopkins. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I went for uh, creative writing and philosophy. I double majored. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Were, you, were you writing like uh, humorous things, even if you didn't like really classify it as that? Yeah, I did. Well, so in college, I did a lot of writing. I mainly focused on writing. But again, I, and it, so I, would write, I wrote like a lot of, uh, there was like a student one act, a company, theater company that put up one acts, and I wrote like a ton of those. And they were all usually comedic. And I did like, um, I did the, like a theater program. We didn't even have like a, Johns Hopkins doesn't even have like a theater major or minor, but there are classes you can take. So I took those. And uh, I also edited the college newspaper. So I did as much like writing as I could. And, um, and, uh, and in different forms. Uh, but yeah, I never really thought about like comedy writing specifically. And college too also was like, a golden age time for both um for both Conan O'Brien and for the Daily Show um with John Stewart because it was I went to college um basically in the years between the uh invasion of Iraq and the financial crisis and so that was a time where especially in that period from like 2004 to 2008 which is when I went to college uh, John Stewart was like indispensable, mm-hmm. so those two shows were really um, had a huge impact on me. But yeah, I still I did I wrote fictitious things. I wrote fiction and and and, and I also did the newspaper. Uh, but even then, I and and I watched those shows obsessively. But even then, I it just never occurred to me like no one in my family is even remotely close to entertainment in any way mm-hmm. whatsoever. Like so, it just. No, you know, most of my, I'm the first in my family to even like go to college. So it never, it just was like such a crazy thing that never occurred to me to be a comedy writer. Mm-hmm. And you were, so you mentioned you were the editor of your newspaper. Did that kind of, um, those kind of like strict deadlines kind of help you for your job now? Uh, you know, yeah, I think they did actually. It definitely helped me, um, uh, hone like, I got really, even though it's a student newspaper, it's a ton of work for like a small group of students, which I, I highly recommend anyone do in college. 
because it is like a ton of work to put out a full newspaper that you're completely and totally responsible for. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I just got really good at disciplining myself to do that much work and, and also to do it on deadline, as you mentioned, and to make a lot of last minute changes and make, and just like learn how to, uh, um, make decisions judiciously and in like a efficient way, because, you know, things would happen, a story would fall through and, uh, somebody else would have a new idea and and you have to publish it a certain time. The newspaper comes out. Ours was a weekly newspaper. So it would come out every Thursday. And, you know, no matter what, we would always be at the newspaper office until like four o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. on Wednesday night, which weirdly sums up, which is weirdly mirrors my life now. Um, And, uh, and so, yeah, so that it was actually my sort of first exposure to that kind of thing. And it was, it was, it was a good, it was a good experience. It's a, it's a weird thing about deadlines. Cause it's like, uh, like for instance, I'm like, I'm, I go to NYU, I'm in a class right now. And we had like a, a month to fit, to do these like 30 pages. I just didn't start until like the day before they oh, were yeah, due. Totally, yeah. And then I just worked through them and like, I had them on, in on time, but it was just like, I just did it the day before. Oh, absolutely. I was the same way in college. And I mean, I'm really the same way now. I, yeah. I and I always have been with, with, everything and even with comedy i just i need deadlines to force me to do Mm -hmm. stuff um i feel like most people do you know there are those few crazy people out there who are self-motivated and i you know i wish i was one of those people but but my hypothesis is maybe that uh it's better to do it later how so why do you think that well it just it's like one burst of uh creative energy i feel like gets you through that's true. I like that. Also, I do believe that inspiration. I do believe in inspiration. Like uh-huh. you, you, especially in creative fields, anything involving writing. Like sometimes it is hard to push uphill. Like you don't have, you're not thinking as clearly or as creatively as you could be. I think we've all been there. And sometimes you need the space to let inspiration strike you and to feel like you just had an idea and then kind of roll downhill from there. Like that's and. Sometimes to do that, you need to detach yourself. You need to step away from something in order to just kind of like sit with your own thoughts or sit by yourself and and let inspiration come to you. So I definitely think that there's something to like not just being like, you know, obviously that it's real life. Sometimes you have to just sit down and, and right. finish your work regardless of whether you have any good ideas or feel like you're doing a good job or not. You just have to do it. Um, but definitely I think there is something to kind of like waiting until you have like a creative burst of energy and then trying to like, it's easier to sort of sled downhill from that instead of pushing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after college you were, you worked as a journalist for, uh, for a while. I did. So I essentially, so as I mentioned, I never really like thought of comedy writing as a real job. So that I could have, so I, out of college, I, I got journalism jobs and then, uh, here in the, here in New York City, um, and immediately missed doing like um, comedy writing and playwriting and theater and stuff. So, um, so I got those journalism jobs, and at the same time, I I started. I I'd never really been a performer, but the one way that I knew of that I could kind of keep like theater in my life was to go start taking classes at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Uh, so I was doing that at night, 
while I was doing my journalism jobs during the day. Mm-hmm. Did you work at uh, any like news shows during that time? Yeah. So in my first two years here uh, in New York City, I worked in like um, I worked for like small newspapers, local newspapers. Um, after that, I worked for PBS, the PBS station here, which made this sort of national. Um, it was a, it, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was like a news magazine. So PBS has famously the News Hour, which is their nightly newscast. And then for a while, they had this sort of news magazine show that would air once a week called Need to Know. Oh, yeah. And um, I so then I went to go work there. Um, and then after that, I worked at uh, MSNBC um, for a show called Up with Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes is now a nightly host uh, yeah a primetime host and has been for like five years so that was kind of five years ago and during that time i was doing that i was progressively moving from one thing to another and, and kind of getting more experience um i like by it was it was it was so weird it was almost like two parallel and distinct paths that like were simultaneously like moving up together so i was like going from being like a working for these small little newspapers to being a production assistant at PBS to then being a producer at MSNBC. And at the same time I went from taking at night, I was taking classes at UCB and then I got into these like advanced classes and I was becoming increasingly obsessed with that. And that was like my whole life revolved around that. And then by the time I got to Chris Hayes, um, which is about five years ago, it was actually crazy how it almost like simultaneously coincided I got to Chris Hayes, and then at the same time, I started getting on like house teams at UCB at night. So I would do the my job during the day in MSNBC, and then I was on like a house sketch team and a house improv team at UCB as well. That's awesome. Uh, what was it? Was working like a, on a daily uh, news show or news show similar to being like on a daily comedy show? Well. Um, I was never so it definitely there, there are definitely things that helped me and prepared me a lot. I was never on a daily news okay. show. Yeah, the up with Chris Hayes was um, a weekend show. So it was on Saturdays oh, and I Sundays. See, I see. Yeah, um, which was great because I it was a great experience. It's not like that show got a lot of critical praise, uh, rightly so, for not being a uh, like most of the rest of cable news, which can kind of be like a shout fest or just sort of like. Um, shallow punditry and that show was really great because it was um chris is like a brilliant person who is intellectually curious about a lot of things so we covered a range of issues and it was like weekly so we had time to sit around and talk and think through things deeply and i really liked that and also just like the mechanics of like writing for tv that was essentially the first time i had done that like writing for a host who's going to read your words on tv like writing a clear coherent script for that person in their voice a summary of what had happened to sufficiently explain to the viewers so that they can understand the segment. Like all those things were skills that I learned on that show. And then on top of that, I just sort of honed like critical thinking about the news and like ways to add to the conversation that aren't just the sort of like typical shallow punditry that you could get like anywhere, you know, Mm -hmm. what is something, what's an idea that we could bring to bear on this. That's interesting. Um, or, or, or a lens through which, if our viewers were to look at this story, it might open their eyes to something they hadn't thought about before. So I learned all that stuff there. And uh, yeah, it was this sort of crazy fusion of like, that was a year, especially because I was working for Out With Chris Hayes during the 2012 presidential election. So that was a year that just sort of like all these things started to fuse in my brain that that uh, 
became relevant to my job now, which is like I was working for Chris Hayes in that show during a presidential election. And then at night I was writing sketches and doing improv at UCB. And so that period of like that one year with those two things combined was sort of very formative for mm. uh, was like, it just happened to be like I was doing all of these things at once. And it was a good, it was a, it was a lot, it was a great experience. What was it like covering the election um, from like a journalistic standpoint in 2012 and then doing it uh, from a comedy standpoint in 2016? Well, the interest, so yeah, um, you know, I think the main, the main difference is now my first instinct is like, you know, thinking about jokes. If they, when things happen, my first instinct is thinking about comedic takes on them. Whereas in 2012, we were just sort of reacting to developments, trying to think of interesting uh, takes on them. I do think those things come together because now my main goal is still fundamentally for it to be funny. It's a piece of comedy and we want to entertain you. But we also want, you know, to have a, we want to think about like through that comedy, can we make people think about the story in an interesting way or at the very least synthesize the events for you in a way that will make you think a little differently about them or shed some light on them. Um, I think there are certain ways in which comedy is really good at that. So there is some overlap there. Um, but you know, obviously the difference is, you know, when like, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't writing jokes about Mitt Romney in 2012, whereas like the main <laughs> thing is like writing jokes about Donald Trump now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you mentioned you were on a mod team. Uh, yeah. how would you generate your sketch ideas for mod? That is interesting. I don't really know where sketch ideas come from. Yeah. I think I I think um my and what's funny about that is what I was writing for UCB and on mod teams and stuff was not topical at all. Like I never wrote anything that was topical at UCB. Um so, you know, I would just sort of like half ideas would come to you, you'd write them down, you'd think them over, you'd think about where could that go. Um Improv was actually really good training for sketch because improv is essentially the skill of being in a normal situation. And then when something abnormal arises, like calling it out and saying that that's weird, explaining why it's weird, and then looking for other ways to repeat that weird behavior in in ways that are both consistent but also surprising. Mm -hmm. That's essentially the skill of improv. So doing that in real time on your feet is good training for then just kind of walking around in life and being like, that's weird. Like, how do I take that and turn it into a piece of uh, comedic writing? Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, uh, you just kind of walk through life and do that. Um, uh, which is why always actually, um, uh, at UCB, we always talked about and I always felt very strongly about like in order to be a good comedy or in order to be really any kind of writer or do lots of different creative things, I think, well, you also just have to like live a, a, an interesting life. Like not crazy. I'm not saying you have to be like a, a man of adventure or like a – but like uh, you just have to like um, – you, you because when you're doing comedy and you're doing UCB or anything like that, it's very easy to become obsessively caught up in it. And your whole life is just doing comedy. And it's the same thing for me now. Like, you have to step outside of it and just, like, live your normal life because that's what you draw on mm-hmm. for for ideas. So um, so, the, so that's just kind of what you do is just you kind of live your life. But you have your – you hone your comedic sensibility, what you as a per- human being find funny, which mm-hmm. is what 
which is what programs like UCB and others like it are really good for. Because, um, you know, I think people generally, if you, or for comedian especially, you have a natural sense of humor, but it takes time to figure out, to hone it specifically. What do I find funny? Mm-hmm. Like, what is funny about me and my view of the world? And um, to, to be able to know that consistently mm-hmm. and draw upon it. So, uh, so, so that's kind of what is good for UCB. And that's kind of what the training for, uh, that's like something like what mod night, for example, is really, is really good for what I got out of it. Well, and, uh, this is is a tough question, but what do you find funny? What do you think it is? Oh man. Um, uh, it's really hard to just sort of articulate. Mm -hmm. Here's what I find funny. Right. I will say one thing I've always found funny um, this was true of UCB and all the way back in the day. I would write shows and stuff, and it was true now. One specific thing I kind of find funny is, um, like, uh, I find minutia funny or, like, official business that sounds like... Um, I love sort of things that sound like mundane conversation. Or, um, so, like, one of the things I... I find funny about Donald Trump. And so specifically, I mean, there's like obviously a million things mm-hmm. that people find both funny and horrifying about him, but like in the ways that he'll just sort of like, he's obviously rambles, but it, it's, it's almost like funnier to me when he, uh, and I think more notable and what I think is both insane and horrifying, but also in a dark way, funny is like when he just sort of like rambles mundanely about something mm-hmm. like, um, the other day when he was at the Easter egg thing, we wrote this thing about how it was like, he just was like talking about the white house and just saying, <laughs> it's a, it's a house, it's a building. It's, um, and it, like it, it, yeah. He said like, there's no, there's no name for it. Yeah, exactly. Which is like, that's the thing that's really yeah. funny, but somebody also just talking about like a, a location in yeah. this like overly like descriptive, like rambly way. Like you could also see that just being like somebody like a sort of like, uh, like middle tier manager in an office, just like trying to talk to his employees being like, you know, this, this company is, it's a company. Yeah, what can you yeah. say about it? You know, like that kind of minutia, those sort of like that, that is very funny to me. I wrote a whole show, um, at UCB, which I'm still very proud of. It was like years ago. Um, my writing partner and I did this show. We are where we are essentially like infomercial salesmen selling the show oh, and we're funny. trying to get people to buy the show and um, most of the sketches were just us doing like like nonsensical charts and stuff, and I find that sort of like make that that sort of like um, self important like thing the minutia of like self important business guys like really funny. Yeah. Like just coming up with like a really elaborate like chart presentation that is like meaningless, for mm-hmm. example. So that's just like one example, but it is very hard to articulate. Right? Yeah. What do you find funny? Because part of it's just instinctual, you know? You just have to trust your instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just takes... It's a matter of, like, over time honing those instincts so that you're in touch with them and that you feel like you you trust them and you know how to, like, take your instincts and translate them into something that makes sense. Right. Uh, what makes a good... Uh, what, what are the hallmarks of a good mod sketch to you? Um... I would say the main thing is it goes somewhere surprising that I just didn't see. Mm. But there's obviously basics that you that you learn when you're writing sketch writing and you get very good at, hopefully, when you're working on sketch writing of like clearly articulating the comedic idea early on and then repeating that funny behavior in an interesting way that heightens. And 
you know, after a while, I would find this happening with myself. Like, you can start writing sketches that that work according to the math, but they're not really that fun because right. you see where they're going. So, I would think the main thing to me is like, but it's a balance because you also don't want to just like throw a wrench in there that makes no sense for no reason. It has to feel like it's surprising but earned. So I feel like that's the hardest thing to do in a comedic sketch, but also the most rewarding and the thing that that makes it stands out the the most. Like, and that's a progression that I think everyone eventually learns. Like you get in in every field, you get comfortable with the rules, you get comfortable with how things done, how things are done, so that you can hopefully kind of like transcend them a little or mm-hmm. break them a little bit. So um, on the time that I was on mod, I started out writing just sketches that were like, you know, an idea taken right the the comedic behavior heightens like three times or whatever and then it's done and toward the end of it i definitely found myself writing more sort of like weird left turns toward the end that hopefully feel like they're earned uh but are still surprising to the audience and catch them off guard Mm -hmm. because that's the fun thing about going to see especially live comedy in any way you want to be surprised um but also feel like it makes sense Mm -hmm. and especially like at a place like ucb everyone's kind of Mostly people have like seen like know a lot about sketch comedy and kind of like yeah yeah or an audience that might be appreciate something surprising totally yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, like mathematical sketches, and I think a lot of um, sketch writers early on, like once they get start getting like decent at it, like oh yeah this works, but it's like not that fun. How do you yeah. get past that? Um, yeah, I think that's I think that's hard. I think you have to. Um, I think you have to add, you just have to try to get in touch with what you find funny. I do think it's generally true that if you're if you're not laughing at your own stuff, then there's a little bit of a problem. Um, not that you need to be sit there cackling to yourself, but like if you're enjoying what you're writing, then 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 that's meaningful. That that means something. So you can definitely fall into the trap of just like this is a competent sketch mm-hmm. that I could turn in, and it feels right, but. You know, you should definitely enjoy what you're writing. And so sometimes it just takes some time to get back in touch with like what you find funny mm-hmm. and take a little bit of risk and put something in that if it makes you laugh, um, see see how it goes. And I do think that's the value of being able to do stuff in front of live audiences because it really helps you figure out like the line between indulging yourself to the point of of, of ignoring the audience. Like you could just sort of like uh, 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 indulge whatever you think is funny to the point of it not even making sense. That's on the one one end of the spectrum, and the other end of the spectrum can be totally boring and predictable. Mm-hmm. And just doing things a lot often in front of a live audience, whether it's improv, writing sketches, any other kind of creative thing, um, just helps you find the balance between like helps you find between the balance between like indulging indulging what you find funny, but also making sure that. Um, you're connecting with the audience. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes it's just a matter of getting back in touch with like your own comedic instincts. Why did you get into comedy? What do you think is funny? Mm-hmm. You know? uh, my favorite mathematical sketch that I wrote uh, was Professional Babysitter. Uh, it's okay. a very classic down yeah. the middle bit. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, she like, uh, or the babysitter's like, you know, uh, I've got a credit card machine that you can use and stuff like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Classic mathematics. Uh, oh yeah, you're mapping all the details yeah. of like what it's like to work, be a professional, onto babysitting. Yeah. All the details make sense. It's not bad. It's just, is it making you as a 
writer when you're doing that is it making you laugh are you enjoying right it, you know so mm-hmm. it's a question you eventually you learn the rules so that you get comfortable with them and then you should hopefully get to a point where you're like now i'm just trying to i'm trying to like do stuff that i think is really fun and is representative of what i think is funny you know mm-hmm. what was your uh, favorite mod sketch from that time um I did this sketch. Speaking of mathematical, actually, this is like the most mathematical, <laughs> but in a in an in, taken to an absurd point. Like, I I wrote this sketch called um, "Casting Directors," where it was literally just like the sketch itself was a palindrome, essentially, where okay. two people are sitting at a at a table as casting directors. Two more people come in and they say, "We're here to audition for the part of casting directors." And then they start their audition. They sit down at a table (laughs) and then two more people come in and uh, they say they're here for the role of casting directors because they're part of the the audition now. And then they, those people sit down to audition for the people who are auditioning for the part of casting directors. And then one person comes in and they say, I'm here for the role of audience member. And then that person just sits down. And then, so the first casting directors are studiously, my favorite things with the actors did in this sketch, like, the first, at, then there's just like a period of silence for like 30 seconds that like I think the audience just enjoyed because they didn't see like they like people are just sitting there in silence like acting. There's nothing going on. So the first two casting directors are watching the second two casting directors <laughs> and the second two casting directors are studiously like watching the next two casting directors and they're all taking notes on each other and then the next two casting directors are watching the audience members and they're just doing that for like 30 to 45 seconds on stage with nothing else happening and then the the third pair of casting actors just says uh like okay uh thanks so much for coming in the audience member leaves and then the and it just unfolds um there was some other there was some other through lines in there i'm trying to remember there was a through line oh because there there still need to be some surprising details. So then like, uh, Oh, right. So that, so like after the audience member would leave, then the, then the, the, the third pair of casting directors would have a line where they're like, Oh man, we got to catch this drug pig game pen. Good thing. We're undercover as casting directors or something. <laughs> and then the second casting directors would be like, okay, thanks for coming in. Like it would all reveal that they had one line and then like it would go back and then the, it would reveal that the first casting directors were also, auditioning for and then somebody got on the god mic was like thank you for coming in and then, so it just it 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 was very mathematical in a way um but hopefully had like surprising moments yeah my favorite thing that i remember about that is just the the actors sitting on silence on stage for that long of time just like watching each other i think <laughs> that was the most surprising thing for the audience of just like sitting there in silence watching right. these people watch each other <laughs> like it's just such a weird thing um so yeah that probably is my favorite how, how do you pitch something like that um i think i just pitched it as so like like casting directors auditioning for the part of casting directors it wasn't as thought out as right, the final right. product oh no actually I take it back. I'm pretty sure um, uh, one of the actors, uh, a very funny guy named uh, Dom Manzolo, pitched something like uh, a palindrome sketch where somebody – and then he and I worked on it from there. And I was like, well, what if it's casting directors? And then – so I think he originally pitched the idea of like a palindrome, doing like some kind of like palindrome sketch. Mm-hmm. And uh, it definitely didn't start out as thought out as it was. And I think I brought the first draft into mod, uh, our writers meeting. And 
it didn't unfold. Like it, it built up. It, it was only like half a pyramid essentially. And I think, and then the note from either our director or maybe the other writers was like, it should just unfold in exactly the same way that it did. Right. And then from there, then once you do that, then you get that form down. And then I think I added the stuff of like, um, uh, uh, having like surprising lines, like, you know, that, that turns out they're auditioning for, for cops undercover as cast characters, like that stuff that would surprise the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think that's kind of, was kind of the evolution of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now you work at uh, late night with Seth Meyers. Uh, how'd you get that job? Um, I got that job because I was working at MSNBC right around the time uh, that the late night show was starting up, was getting ready to launch. And this was like late 2013. And uh, the producer of the show um, just saw me in MSM in MSNBC wearing a UCB hoodie because um, I was uh, very at that. This is the stage at which I was like obsessively on two house teams at the same time, uh, doing UCB stuff all the time, and I was probably like writing UCB sketches at MSNBC like I was working during the day. And uh, he just saw me wearing UCB hoodie. We made started making conversation, and um, they needed. They were hiring, and they were looking for somebody to be a segment producer for um, for for interviews specifically because Seth wanted to have try to have on as much as possible politicians, authors, um, uh, like academics, people from that kind of world. So um, so they were looking for somebody who could do that and also had comedy experience, somebody who could do, you know do an interview. Uh, produce an interview with a politician or an author, but still had comedic instincts, make sure it's funny. So, uh, so I, so he asked me if I'd be interested in that job. I interviewed for it and I got it. Um, and then I was doing that job as a second producer, uh, doing the sort of political interviews and the author interviews. And then for like, I'm trying to remember how long it was. I guess it was like a year, year and a half, 2015, the presidential election starts to heat up. And they asked for my help with writing uh, topical pieces about the presidential election. And so originally I was just kind of like coming in, sitting in meetings with Seth, like trying to come up with ideas. And it just sort of took off from there to the point where I was literally just like I was meeting with Seth and he would ask me, like, please, like if you ever have ideas, like just, you know, send me, shoot me an email or something. I would send him emails. I'd send him a little email with a link to a story or a couple links to a story be like, oh, this is kind of funny. Here's some ideas about this. And then from there to the point where I was like writing him really long emails that were essentially a script. And then uh, and then uh, just like, you know, it just got to the point where it was much easier for me to just write a script for him. And then and then at that point, once this became started to become clear, there was a regular feature of the show. It they were, everyone was just like it just makes much more sense for us to move you over mm-hmm. be a writer and work on this full time, mm-hmm. which is what I had always wanted from the beginning. So it was, uh, so that was kind of the evolution of that. It, it all, it all started cause you were wearing a UCB hoodie at work. Basically. That's crazy. <laughs> you're, you're wearing one right now too. This is the one actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. This is a, uh, it's funny because I'm wearing one of these, they don't sell these anymore. It's right. just like one of these old, uh, bl- this sort of like classic black UCB hoodie. Um, they don't sell these anymore, but like there was a time when it was like a real point of pride to wear these. And, uh, 
Um, I remember when they stopped selling these, somebody offered me like a hundred bucks for it. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, I and you still not, said no. I yeah. still said no. Um, it's like falling apart. The pocket is falling apart. Mm-hmm. But, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is the hoodie. I was just wearing this and I just kind of struck up a conversation with him. Uh, so what does a, a segment producer do on a, on a late night show? Is it just with the interviews mostly? Yeah, the segment producer. Well, it's actually different everywhere, so yeah. I don't, you know, um, I don't want to speak for the other shows because I think everyone does have different. I've heard of other shows where second producers do different things. I think sometimes, like if you have bits, like the second producers produce those bits. There are other shows where I think there are other shows that don't really have guests where they do have second producers to do the production side mm-hmm. of the segments that they that they do. Um, at our show, the second producers do the interviews, so they they do pre interviews with the with the. Um, with the guest and then they write up sort of like notes for Seth uh, based on that pre-interview and they go over, talk with Seth about what he wants to talk about or what the guests have, what the guest's ideas are and kind of, so that's kind of the main responsibility. That sounds like a really fun job actually. It is. Yeah. It's a very fun job. You talk to a lot of different, different people. You definitely do. Um, <laughs> I, you know, like I said, when I was a second producer, I focused mostly on politicians and authors, but I'd certainly have to do my share of like, actors and other people oh and the other thing was like seth is super into comic books which i also am and so they also really wanted somebody who could like do the comic book author interviews Mm -hmm. so i would do like politicians literary fiction authors like comic book people um which was like a really fun cross-section and then i would have to just you know here and there do like a actor and musician as well and you have to do some stuff that's like outside your comfort zone sometimes or like people who you don't really know that much about or you're not specifically into and it's it's fun to to learn about that and uh and and produce an interview about that mm-hmm. uh so this was your your first television writing job what was that transition like um it was it was mostly seamless because i essentially had already been doing right. it before i officially moved over to the the writing staff um so you know i had a relationship with everyone already obviously um it so the transition part of it was mostly seamless the crazy part was just the time it took place in the it was the end of 20 when i officially moved over and became a writer it was the end of summer of 2015 and it was like august 2015 and that was essentially right as the presidential election was really becoming crazy and um and at the time i moved over we were doing we are now of course the our signature segment closer luck happens at least three times a week. Usually if it's a crazy week, we might do it four times. Um, but then I think we were doing it maybe like once or maybe twice a week. And the more that, uh, the more intense the presidential election became, we just ramped up and also closer luck was, so it was like, we would do it once or twice a week. It would maybe be like, you know, six minutes, six or seven minutes. And it got to the point where, which is the point is that now, we were doing at least three, some often four, so one every day, and they would be like 10 to 12 minutes long because just so much was happening. We were just doing our best to sort of keep up with it and, and digest it. So that was probably the craziest part, just the time, just what was going on in the world when, mm-hmm. I, when I moved over to become a writer. And so what was it like um, writing jokes for that? Because it's like... Because uh, Trump was like the low hanging fruit that eventually like became like a legitimate candidate, yeah. to the president, yeah. So what was it like starting? Because you were there like, probably right as that process started happening. Yeah, totally. 
Well, the interesting thing is, like, I think probably everyone at first was like, oh, man, you know, er everyone's reaction at first was like, oh, this is going to be comedy gold, Donald Trump running president. Obviously, Mm -hmm. things turned out differently. And I think as we started to discover um, how, like, unhinged and uh, how how dangerous his candidacy was, our our comedy just started to become much sharper. Um, You know, it was – it's although – we noted at the beginning too, like in his first speech, calling Mexicans rapists and claiming some bizarre conspiracy theory about how the Mexican government is supposedly rounding up their quote unquote worst people and, yeah. and sending them across the border. Like that is is unhinged and delusional. And we noted that right at the beginning, that first day, we were like that we noted how crazy that is. But that said, as the campaign started to go on, it became clear he was the front runner, and he started to say things like we should ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Crazy conspiracy theories like Muslims are cheering on rooftops during 9-11 and the, all the other the, the myriad you know, unhinged things that he said. Our comedy just started to become a lot sharper. I remember it seems absurd to remember this now, but in 2015 there was this like real debate over whether – it was fair to call him a liar, okay. like to use the word liar. And I remember it was like a big deal. Like the first time we just straight up said like Donald Trump is a racist and a liar on the show. That was like headlines were written about that. Like that we, that we just, that we just unequivocally explicitly used those words to describe what he was doing and saying, which were totally obviously, I think in hindsight, very obviously appropriate and they were the correct descriptions of the things that he was saying and doing. But like at the time, this was in 2015, calling him a racist and a liar was like this big debate. Like should – you know, I remember like seeing headlines on, you know, I don't know if it was CNN or lots of places being like, should we – is it – should we be using the L word for Donald Trump? Like <laughs> is he is, is, is he a liar? Is he a racist? And it's like – so at the time it was a big deal. But we – you know, once those things started happening – our comedy started to become a lot sharper and just being clear about describing what this really is. And, mm-hmm. he, you know, so um, that was the big thing that started to change. Mm-hmm. And, and how did the uh, Closer Look segment start? Well, it started with when I was still segment producer, we were doing topical pieces mm-hmm. even before Donald Trump ran for president that were we would always have a different name. We would just come up with a joking name for it. Uh, I remember we did one on the the Greek debt crisis, which was crazy to me. It was like a really fun, um, it was really cool because it was, uh, Seth just wanted it. He was interested in that story and he wanted to do like a piece on it. And he called me in and wanted to talk about it and come up with some like ideas. And, uh, so that was like one of the earliest pieces we did. That was before Donald Trump even ran for president. And we called it like up shits Greek or something. We, We would just come up with a punny dumb name for that segment. And then once we started doing these on a regular basis about national politics, when it became time for when the presidential election was heating up, it just became clear that we should just we should just give this segment one recurring name so that people can identify it. Um, I don't know where this name close a closer look specifically came from, but that's the one we chose, and mm-hmm. it just and then it stuck. And you're now uh, the supervising writer. Is yeah. that the right title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's the process of how a closer look comes together? Um, the process is I uh, write the first draft myself. It's usually about 30 pages long is my first draft, wow. which is insane. Yeah. 
Um, I, I've tried to lately. You know, it depends. I would say the range is like twenty five. Maybe twenty five is a more appropriate ballpark. But that, but there, but there have been times. In I mean, I remember there's a couple weeks where, you know, maybe it was the week where like Comey was fired and things are not. I mean, I would send in scripts that were like thirty five pages, maybe thirty seven pages. It's insane and. I'm crazy, but uh, <laughs> um, so anywhere from 20 to 30 pages, I'll send in a first draft and um, and our head writer will make notes on it um, and then Seth will uh, get it and he'll make changes to it, add stuff that he wants to say, edit it, um, and then we'll read it and then we'll make changes based on reading it and then we'll uh, and then during the day I spend my time we don't, at, uh, at our show um, if you're a writer, you produce your segment as well. So you're in charge of ma- approving all the, gr- looking at the graphics. We have a, a great graphics department, a great video research department. They handle all the, all of that stuff, but you still have to go look at all that stuff. You have to describe what you want. You have to approve it or ask for changes. So I'll spend the rest of the day finalizing the script, running around, making graphics changes, looking at video, uh, video clips, making changes with our video researchers and editors um, news will obviously routinely break throughout the day, so I'll run back to my computer. I'll write up something really quick. I'll send it to Seth and our head writer Alex Bays, and I'll um, uh, I'll see if they want to add that, and if they do, or if they have some changes they want to make, um, I'll take those and I'll um, uh, I'll try to get those in for the script department, and uh, then we'll have a, a rehearsal at four fifteen in the afternoon where we rehearse that piece, and based on we have a test audience we bring in. And then based on how that rehearsal goes, we make cuts. Um, If there's any more breaking news, I'll do the same thing. Like yesterday, there was like breaking news that happened like really late in the day. And I just threw something together. I wrote a couple jokes. I sent it. Seth was like, great, let's put this in. Um, And so we'll, so that's all kind of happening late in the afternoon. I'm making changes based on rehearsal. I'm also adding anything based on breaking news. If that happens, um, and then we do a, a, a cue card read with Seth where he just does one final read through from the cue cards um, just to make, make sure everything's right. And uh, I go to the control room of our show one more time just to sort of finalize, give final approval of like all the graphics and clips and everything. And then we do the show at 630 for the audience. So um, how much time is that? That seems like a, a fair chunk of time. Uh, it is a fair. It yeah. is. Um, it's an undertaking. Uh I write the script so like just just using Monday as an example, I I write the script on Sundays. So um, I, I you know it takes me like I would say to write a full closer look script anywhere from like six to eight hours, and that but that includes me like wandering around my yeah. apartment doing non work related things. But like I'll you know I might start at like noon and finish at like eight o'clock on a Sunday, and I send that in, and then on Monday. Um, Seth and our head writer Alex Bays they they go over it they make their changes that and then um, uh, and then and then we read it and then I add more stuff based on what happened on Monday because inevitably something crazy is going to happen multiple times probably throughout the day so I add more stuff um, and uh, yeah so it's just it is it's a lot of time mm-hmm. yeah. So when you do this uh, first draft, are you just trying to get like all the information, all the jokes in, and like knowing that you're gonna like cut most of it? Definitely, yes. I overindulge. Mm-hmm. I would say, 
Um, I get in a lot of stuff, a lot of information. I def I write multiple jokes like I'm the same thing, so I'll write like alts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'll have like some clip of Trump saying something or some information or whatever, and then I'll have like a couple jokes usually, knowing that some of them are going to get cut. So I definitely write more. I definitely knowingly write a lot more than mm-hmm. what is ultimately going to end up in the show, um, just so we have. We have fat that we can cut, and we can make choices about what we like and we don't, what we don't like, and and what stories are more important. Because you know, sometimes on Sundays it's not a hundred percent clear what's going to feel like the most urgent on Monday, mm-hmm. what our audience is going to hear the most about. So sometimes I write more just because I don't really know what's going to feel like the most necessary on Monday, and then we'll kind of make that decision on Monday once mm-hmm. we we see what the news is like. Um, so yeah, so I write in more stories and I write in more jokes than I know we're gonna have mm-hmm. room for, and then we, we we cut you know throughout the day and add other stuff. And, and you used um, Sunday and Monday as an example, but if you're doing it for like a, a Thursday show or a Wednesday show, does that mean you're like working through the night for the? Well, thing? the the Thursday show is the hardest because that is when I'm kind of working through the night. The Wednesday show, theoretically, I'm work. I can finish that. On, I can do that on Tuesday at work because mm-hmm. that's the one day we usually don't have a closer look. Um, so on Tuesdays, I'm generally kind of writing Wednesday's closer look. If anything crazy happens at night, I might go home and, and add that on Tuesday night. But generally, I get it done during the day. Wednesday is the day where I'm running around. I'm writing stuff for that day's closer look. I'm trying whenever I have a few free moments during the day to jam out some stuff for Thursday. But then inevitably, I have to go home and I have to kind of work uh, overnight. I usually send in my Thursday script pretty late. Like I think this week I sent in a script for Thursday's show at like two in the morning or something like that. And so this isn't like a, a typical late night segment because there's a lot of uh, facts, a lot of information. How yeah. do you decide where to put the jokes in? Um, it's just really a, a matter of I just want to make sure we have a lot of jokes everywhere. Um, so I feel like generally speaking. If I'm giving you a piece of information, uh, uh, you sh- there should also be a joke there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I generally feel like um, I just want it to be as full of jokes as possible because it's also going to be like I feel we want it to be incisive and sharp about the news, um, which it, I, which we always endeavor to make sure that it is and always have like uh, a take that is going to have our audience think about the news in a, in a way that they maybe haven't thought of. So if we're asking for that, I also want to make sure we're giving you as many jokes as we possibly can. So I don't really have a process for deciding what joke should go here, joke should not go here. It's just like I want to make sure I get in as many as possible. Mm-hmm. So, um, And that's you know the most fun part of the job um, is uh, having something and then you know writing like, just a long sort of like two pages worth of jokes. Mm -hmm. So I, there's not, I just, I just want to make sure we're giving information. We are also giving you as many jokes Mm -hmm. as possible. And so how, how difficult is the cutting process? Uh, Um, it, it, you know, I think it, it, it makes itself apparent throughout the day. There are definitely some times where you're like, I wish this had worked better Mm -hmm. because I really like this point that we're making, but the joke didn't work. So we have to cut it. Or we just were really short on time today for various reasons, so we just need to cut some stuff from from this for time. So that can be hard. But usually throughout the day, whether it's because of the news, what's going on in the news, 
or because of our test audience, the cuts generally make themselves pretty clear. And I would say, actually, after our rehearsal, the cutting process is fairly quick and efficient. It's pretty clear after the audience, after we test in front of the audience, like, okay, cut this page, keep this page, cut this, cut that joke, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what's it like working directly with with Seth on that? Um, It's great. Uh, It's just really um, rewarding and fun to work for somebody who primarily identifies as a writer and who's intellectually curious about things and just wants to talk about stuff. And, and, um, you know, uh, it's, it's great because even if we're not specifically working on like something specific, uh, 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 for that day's closer look, we'll often just have like a discussion about the news and, uh, what's going on because he's, he's a writer and he's, he's intellectually curious and he wants to just talk about stuff and that's really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, it's great. Also, he makes your writing better because he is a writer. So he wants to he wants to he wants to make the writing better whenever possible, and, and that's that's it's great to work for somebody who can do that. Mm-hmm. And so, what are the hallmarks of a good a closer look segment? Would you say, um, I think the hallmark of a good closer look segment is especially right now, everything's very bewildering, and there are times when you generally don't know what to think. And I think a closer look hopefully will help us sort of plant our feet on the round, the ground of reality and just sort of reaffirm like what is the truth of what's ha- really happening which i think mm-hmm. is comedy is really good for like mm-hmm. we all have innate senses of humor and this kind of comes back to my improv training we're all sort of instinctually good at recognizing when something is weird or abnormal and that's what happens at an improv show when you're in a you start a scene organically it's like you're in your apartment with your roommate or whatever that's a normal scene nobody's laughing at that because it's normal and then something weird happens that is not normal and somebody calls it out and the audience laughs at it that's how you know that okay that's what this scene is about i called this thing out and the audience laughs at it because they get that this behavior is abnormal so we're going to make this scene about that weird behavior and we all have that and i think comedy is very good at that and hopefully that's what closer look essentially is is Everything's very head spinning right now. Um, it's very disorienting to follow the news sometimes. And closer look is just going to plant our feet on the ground, call out what's unusual in a sharp, incisive way, so that you feel like you're not crazy, you're not alone. Like that is abnormal. We're going to explain to you why and the ver- give you context for why it matters and synthesize the news in a way that mm. makes sense of it to you. So that's kind of how I think of closer look. With uh, political comedy in general, do you ever worry about um, an audience uh, clapping because like, they agree with you rather than just laughing? Yeah, we we don't we don't want that. Yeah. We don't want. We're not. We never want to aim for that, and we often try to avoid it whenever possible. Sometimes it happens, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, people feel very strongly about what's going on in the world right now, so they have opinions. And when you say something, they might applaud for it. Like we love the audience's energy, so that's going to happen sometimes. But we try to plan in advance as much as possible, like to avoid having that reaction because we don't want to just say something that's like, Oh yeah, everyone agrees with us. Like we want to, we want to be interesting. Like we want to say something that is either like funny. So it's surprising to the audience. They didn't expect it. Or, um, or is at the very least like a take that hadn't, mm-hmm. they hadn't occurred to is going to help them make sense of the news. And it's not just going to be like parroting things back at them that they already agree with. 
generally speaking, what are your thoughts on how um, political comedy has tackled Trump? Um, my main thought is just that um, he is the center of our political universe right now, for better or worse. He he epitomizes a lot of what's wrong with our political system right now, how dysfunctional and unhealthy it is, um, our political culture. And so that's that's the way that's the that's just the reality of the situation. Um, but thankfully, we have I, I think the myriad of shows that do political comedy about Trump and other things is really good because everyone has different points of view and everyone has a different way of tackling it. And that diversity in political comedy is actually really good. Um, and I'm always amazed by the fact of, you know, something will happen and I'll look the next day. And for the most part, all of the shows have approached it in a different way that's unique to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's good because, you know, or they, or they take to, or, or we choose different stories to focus on, which is good because, you know, it shouldn't be monolithic. Uh, nothing should be. Everyone should be exposed to different points of view and, and different ideology. So, you know, I, uh, I'm, I think that's great. Um, so the only thing I would think of is um, I, I think the diversity and the range of viewpoints, like there are a lot of late night shows that talk that do political comedy right now that talk about Donald Trump. But so far to me, that's only been a positive. Mm-hmm. What's something that's uh, surprised you at working in late night? Um, the main surprise, I, I would say people's appetite for really long pieces of content. Yeah. Like it's, it is generally supposed because there was a time when people thought, um, did like if you did a, like when I was doing comedy videos, for example, like when I was at UCB and I was like, my friends and I would make videos and stuff. I remember people being like, every video has to be really short. Like it, it was like considered a rule of thumb. Like it's got to be two and a half minutes or shorter or nobody's going to watch it. Like that's just the ecosystem of how like YouTube and online video works. And I've been really surprised and gratified by the fact that we can do like a 10 to 12 minute closer look and people watch it or like John Oliver does like a 20 minute piece on, um, you know, civil asset forfeiture or whatever. And people, millions of people watch it. So that's the main thing that's been the most surprising to me Mm -hmm. and the most gratifying. Like I'm, Mm -hmm. it's great that millions of people want to watch like a 10 minute segment on news and politics because they're engaged and they want to know more about it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I didn't think about that, but I guess like all the rules about like online comedy are changing. Yeah. every day now. But yeah, totally. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I I didn't think because like Oliver, those segments are huge on YouTube. Oh yeah, and then yeah, so are the the closer look stuff. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and everyone's doing long like every you know even the shortest segment that anyone does just because of the format of their show. You know, there are some shows that are half hour shows where an hour long show, so our our show's broken up a little differently. Our first act of the show is much longer, so we have more room. But even the shows that are half-hour shows, their 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 segments are six, seven, eight minutes long. Like that's much longer than than there was a period of time where people said like nobody's going to watch anything online that's longer than two and a half minutes, and that's been proven wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you like to be doing next? I don't know. I have no idea. It's it's so hard to step outside of what's happening right now because it's const- so constantly insane every minute and we're not near the end of it by any stretch. <laughs> like we're going to have another presidential election in 2020. Who the hell knows what's going to happen after that. Um, so we're kind of in the thick of this right now and it, and it's, there's, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to conceive of what, what would happen mm-hmm. next to be totally honest. I'm just like, it, it's hard to detach yourself <clears throat> from the daily sort of disorienting 
madness of what's going mm-hmm. on. So I'm just sort of like fully invested in what I'm doing right now. Mm-hmm. I just you just made me realize that we're gonna be like. The election's going to be like a huge news in like eight months. Like right after the midterms, we're just going to go straight to presidential election. Probably, oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That's crazy. crazy. Yeah, it is. Wow. Yeah. It, it, it always happens. It, it's This is just how politics is yeah. right now, which is bad. But I think especially with Donald Trump as president, there is obviously yeah. so much energy surrounding, um, especially like very good activism and energy um, in the uh, uh, on the left. I think there's just people are anxious to get another crack at him. So it's yeah. just going to be like, let's, let's go, let's do this. Mm-hmm. But yes, that is going to happen very soon. So yeah. if anything, it's just going to get even crazier. Right. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we're going to wrap up with you giving your thoughts on a sketch idea I have. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is the favorite segment for everybody. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I don't know if this is a, well, I, yeah, I don't know if this is a sketch or just like a, like a short, like video for like social media that I would do, Okay, but it's a, a guy who's angry at Donald Trump, uh, but also can't stop eating his meatball sub. So he's like yelling, uh, but he's still eating this meatball sub at the same time. Um, I think that's funny. I like um, I like fun set pieces where people just get to do some like an actor gets to do something funny mm-hmm. like that, like just eating, yelling and eating a meatball sub. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's funny. I think it's in. I think a lot of it will be in the performance, yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is fun. Um, mm-hmm. Some of my favorite things that I've ever written is are like really just giving the actors permission to perform, and it's going to be so. So, uh, I sounds like a funny idea to yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything you want to plug? Um, no, I don't really have anything yeah. to plug. <laughs> I just you know. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really tweet that much. So I, you know, I could plug that, but you might be disappointed by how little I tweet. <laughs> so um, no plugs for me. All right. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of On Comedy Writing. I want to thank Nick Doss for supplying the sweet tunes, Zachary Glassman for giving us the awesome logo, and Bordock Audio for hosting us. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, and like and follow on Comedy Writing on Facebook and Twitter. See you next week. And a Boardwalk Audio podcast. For more information and shows, visit BoardwalkAudio.com. Don't forget to rate and subscribe now.